but way back many, many years ago, decades ago, after the war. Uh, but this is what the article said, and I just picked out pieces of this that I thought were pertinent to what I was curious about. It says that only the two villages are inside, and that names the, the village, uh, one about a mile away from the other one in the border. No communication has since been allowed between the villages that had been neighbors for centuries, making it impossible for this one man, they name his name, 82 years of age, uh, in one of the villages to find out whether his elder brother is still living. Whenever villagers venture to their rice paddies near the borderline just 1,300 feet away, imagine that, they are shadowed by South Korean soldiers. They also live with a midnight to sunrise curfew and a door-to-door roll call every night. When they invite friends from outside the DMZ to visit, which I didn't even know that was a possibility, villagers have to apply for approval two weeks in advance. Once a car enters the DMZ, its navigation map goes blank. Soldiers must escort all visitors. Uh, The one little village has no gym, no hospital, no supermarket, no restaurant. If a villager, and I kind of thought this was a little comical, so forgive my sick humor. If a villager orders Chinese takeout, the last military checkpoint outside the DMZ is as far as the delivery vehicle can come. The dish must be left there for a villager to pick up. A bus comes to the village four times a day. Villagers here often find themselves front seat witnesses to the ebb and flow of inter-Korean tensions. Now, I read that and I thought, okay, that's a good place to create a title for the message. And so the title for this morning is No Life in the Middle. No Real Life in the Middle. Now, if you can imagine yourself being one of these dear people having to go through this kind of life for all of these years, I think you can begin to understand that there is no middle life in this world between serving Jesus and serving the world or serving Satan. There is no middle ground. In other words, you cannot have one foot in one and one foot in the other. It doesn't work that way. And many, many people try to do just that. And our text is going to make that clear from the Lord himself. So we're back in Matthew chapter 12. Let's stand and let's read verses 22 through 32. As we hear the Lord give specifically an illustration, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, give descriptions of this illustration, and then he's going to make his point. So he's building to a crescendo, if you will. Okay, so beginning in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone either anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. 
He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemies shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall, not, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. All right. You may be seated. A lot in there. But it really does break down pretty well without getting into too much detail, which we obviously could. Uh, there is a tremendous amount in this. But let's go back now because it's been really since uh, December the 12th, I think it is, since we were in the book of Matthew. So if you haven't read this for a while, let's go back and just remember just a couple key points. And that is you should know or at least remember that Jesus, uh, Matthew, throughout all of this writing is putting Jesus on display as the Messiah as the long-awaited king. But the problem was, and again, you should remember this, that Israel just didn't buy it. They couldn't wrap their head and hands around Jesus for who he says because in their minds, the king was going to be a conqueror uh, in the truest sense of the word, someone who would suppress the nations around them, the cultures around them, uh, who had so long suppressed them. And when Jesus came preaching a message of repentance that was not, what fit their genre of what a king was supposed to be, uh, this person who displayed themselves as a person of great humility, uh, not to mention this bunch of guys that you can kind of think of as a ragtag bunch of, of outcasts who were his entourage, uh, not to mention a guy who wore camel hair and ate locusts and wild honey, lived out on his own and proclaimed this message of repentance as his herald, uh, not to mention all of that, Israel is just like, no, this is just too much. We're just, we're not going to accept you for who you are. In fact, not only did they not accept him, but again, you'll know this, uh, they, they began to reject him, Jesus, more and more, uh, becoming more and more intolerant. And as the wave is building of hatred towards Jesus, you know eventually they will put him on a cross uh, as a traitor of Israel. And that's what they thought, as a blasphemer of the God they worshipped. And I put little g there when I say that, that they were certainly worshipping a God, but Jesus is going to make it very clear here who they were actually worshipping. Now, I want to say a couple things here and read a couple of scriptures because as we get into this, uh, I, I heard something the other day that troubled me, uh, which I never want to be the case, but I sometimes think people hear this, uh, not necessarily just from me, but from other pastors, and that was, uh, they were listening to another pastor preach, and they said, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. Every time I hear one of your messages, I know how wicked of a sinner I am. I know that I'm, you know, people go to hell. And, and sometimes I get sensitive to that and think that, is that all people hear? Um, maybe if you're hearing that, it's because there's a reason for it, right? Maybe that's what the Spirit wants you to pay attention to. What I'm saying is, is that if you also listen to the, the Spirit of God for who He really is, He's going to tell you, I love you. I love you. I came to give my life for you. And I want to give you peace that you long for, right? That's the God we serve. That's the one we worship. In fact, let's just look at a couple of scriptures here from Psalm 86.5, Old Testament. Israel would have known this about God. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Isn't that awesome? and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Psalm 103, verse 3. 
You are the God who pardons all your iniquities or will pardon all iniquities, who heals all diseases. Daniel 9.9, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. If you've read the story in Exodus 34 of when Moses was so desperately wanting God to speak to him and to prove, really kind of show his glory, in other words, to Moses. That's what he said. God, show me your glory. Moses is in this amazing vision of the Lord and in his heart and mind, and he's just saying, Lord, that's not even enough. Show me your glory. And God says, I can't show you my glory, but what I will do is I'll pass by in front of you. And so as Moses is on the mountain, we have this given to us in verse 6. The Lord passes by and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord God, listen, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Boy, how delightful that must have been for Moses to hear such a wonderful truth. The prophet Micah in chapter 7, verse 18, will say, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea, as Micah is prophesying of the goodness that the Lord will enact upon his people Israel if they would just repent, and and for those who do repent. But still... The reason I'm reading this all to you is because the Israelite leaders, the Pharisees, knew all of this. This was the God that was taught to them in the scriptures, but they just couldn't connect the dots between what they saw in Jesus and everything that they knew in scripture. There was this big disconnect. And it's simply because they were blind. Their hearts didn't see. The Spirit of God had not opened them to see. But there's two parts to this. There's also the responsibility of man. They also didn't want to see. They become so indoctrinated in their own lies and their belief system and their traditions that they didn't want to see the truth of who God really is. And that's a a little subtle message in there for us that's been ongoing through all of this is that as God is displaying himself for us over and over and over again and the beauty of all that he is, there's a response that's required from us. Yes, God does the work in us. He puts the Spirit of God at work in us and enlightens our hearts and our eyes, but he still requires of us a response. And it was no different for the people in that day. And so in this text, what we have is another example from the Lord of his amazing demonstration of power. And then, as I said earlier, a couple statements that he wants to make for them to learn. Now, if you remember... In the reading of the text, this was not the first time Jesus had healed a demon-possessed person. We've seen this already. In fact, back in chapter 8, we watched him cast the two uh, demons, or the demons, the multiple demons, out of the two demoniacs. Remember in the region of Gadara, which was down in the uh, southeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee, as Jesus was spending most of his earlier ministry in Capernaum up in the northeastern corner? northwestern corner, excuse me. And so he made the trek across the lake. You remember that? He gets out of the boat and he's encountered by these two demoniacs. He casts them out. In chapter 9, Jesus casts the demon out of a mute man, we're told very specifically. And then we're told by Matthew that not only that, but Jesus did this many times over. 
for people. And so possibly hundreds if not thousands of people were healed of demon possession along with all kinds of things. And as this began to pass into the realm around where Jesus was, the crowds began to love it. They were just so excited about what was happening and even better, they began to catch on to who Jesus really is. And that's what we have for us here in verse 23. The crowds were amazed, not just staggered by what they saw, but you can tell by what's told us here through Matthew that they were beginning to get it. Notice, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, the wheels were spinning and son of David is simply just a phrase in the Old Testament to refer to the line of David, the one who would come, the Messiah. They knew he was coming. They just missed who he was, but the people were beginning to get it. Now, with that though, there's another reason for the miracle, which really is for the religious leaders. And so we have a twofer here. The Lord is encouraging the people And proving who he is, but he wanted the religious leaders and everybody who's listening to hear the message that he really wanted them to hear. And that's because from the first of his ministry, I've already made this clear that the Jewish leaders wanted to do everything that they could to debunk him. They set out purposefully to challenge him by throwing the law at him. You know, they were the experts. So, hey, Jesus, take this. What do you think about this? Give us an answer for this. And all of that was designed to hide their sin and to cause him to fess up about the fact that he was some kind of phony. They lied about him, which is recorded for us in chapter 9 of Matthew. Notice in verse 32, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, listen, this sounds familiar to our text, were saying, He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. But interestingly, at least according to Matthew, the people didn't seem to care about that, at least at that point. But the Pharisees certainly did. But the people, all they knew was, this guy's amazing. Look what he's doing. He's able to do things that nobody can do. How do we explain all of this? And so the crowds just continued to build and to build and to build. Sadly, though we still had this other group of people who wouldn't believe, and these are the ones we're talking about here, they wouldn't hear him. They wouldn't listen really specifically to what Jesus was doing. They didn't really have a heart to follow after him. And I'm not so much just talking about the Pharisees. There were other people that were like that. And that's the same way in every culture, isn't it? I mean, there are multitudes of people that hear about Jesus, but they don't really hear Jesus. There's a big difference there. And that really brings us to the point of all of this that Jesus is making, and I'll just give it to you now, and that is there is a very dangerous place to live in this life, and that is right in the middle of who we say Jesus is and what we want to do on our own. Go back to the title. There's no life to really be had in the middle of walking with Jesus on one side and the world on the other side. But sadly, people do that. Notice in verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, now what is he talking about? He's talking about when the Pharisees heard the people. Evidently, they're standing off, they're viewing all of this, you know, because the Pharisees kind of distanced themselves sort of from the people, and so they would be standing off perhaps 
to the side somehow. And, and as they hear the people say, is this the son of David? They respond to that saying, this man casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And you can kind of hear that heckling coming in over top of them as Jesus is doing this miracle. And again, it's not new. Jesus had already encountered this kind of thing once before. But this time, the Lord somewhat rolls up his sleeves because he wants to make and knows he needs to make a point. This is far enough. I've got to clarify this. I think there's another little uh, hidden message in there, and that is the Lord is wise enough to help us to realize that there are times where we can let certain things go and probably should. In other words, we don't need to make a mountain out of a molehill, right? Sometimes, if you've ever noticed and watched people in their humanity, they get frustrated and upset about things. But if you give them time, they think through things and they come to their senses or they just disagree and go on somewhere else, but things begin to settle back down. But then there are other times where the issue has to be dealt with. And so in God's divine providence, he does that. You might ask the question and almost hear this from the Lord. We'll talk about him in just a second. But how can anybody say this about Jesus? I mean, it sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? That the people who were the very religious leaders would say, this man casts out demons by Beelzebub. It just doesn't make sense. Well, there are people who believe that Jesus is not, even in our day, who the Bible actually tells us he is. I don't know if you know anybody like that or not, and I'm not being mean here. Sometimes I always sound like I'm creating some problem. I'm really not trying to, but... Let's ask our friends across the street. I'm talking about the Mormon church, just as an example. You say, well, they're nice people. Yes, they are. They're the kind of people that you need to love and, 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 and have, you know, be kind to and everything. But when it comes to spiritual understanding of who Jesus is, we're not on the same page. We are just not. And you say, well, can you give me some proof of that? Yes, I can. I went to the BYU, Bob Jones, uh, excuse me, uh, Brigham Young University website. Sorry for that little slip there, not Bob Jones. Um, digital library. And I found a copy right here is a photocopy or printed copy of a page out of the Journal of Discourses. This is the one of the main books that the Mormons used to create and, and did years ago that Brigham Young wrote much of to create their theology, if you will. It's really very scattered in my opinion. I don't know if you've ever read much of it, but uh, he jumps around a lot. But let me just read to you one page. This is out of volume 13, page 282. Uh, the, the page is old from the photocopy in the digital library, so bear with me. But basically Brigham Young says, when men say, quote, O Lord, we are the clay, you are the potter, fashion, shape, and make us, and do with us as seems good in thy sight, only let us know thy will. We are here to perform whatever thou requires, unquote. It makes me think, and this is Brigham Young, of what second person that came forth in the heavens when the voice went forth. Quote, who will redeem the earth, as if this is God speaking? Who will redeem the earth? Who will go forth and make the sacrifice for the earth and all the things it contains? The eldest son said... Here I am, or here am I, but he did not say, send me, 
But the second one, which was Lucifer, son of the morning, said, Lord, here am I. Send me. I will redeem every son and daughter of heaven of Adam and Eve that lives on the earth or that ever goes on the earth. But says the father, that will not answer at all. Now, there's a lot in there. Let me just help you understand what he's saying. If you go on and read this, Brigham Young is talking about how the Lord said at that point, no, no one's going to be able to do this. Man is going to have to make this decision for himself. Okay? But then there's some confusion about who Christ is, you know, bring up Christ and that kind of thing. But what I really wanted you to hear here is in their theology at its basic level is that Jesus and Satan are brothers. And you heard that wording there in his language when he talks about the eldest son. Now, you and I would say that's ridiculous. But there are a group that do that. And there are other people who follow those kinds of practices of even demonic involvement, who believe that Satan in himself is so powerful that he can do all the same things as God, that he has the ability to even be in deity status himself. But the truth is, the Bible tells us that he was a created being, Satan that is. Jesus was not. He always and forever has been along with the Father. Satan, though, however, we're taught, was the most intelligent, the most powerful, the most wonderful in his pre-sin days, if you will, of all the angelic realm. But out of his own selfish ambition, he desired to take over the throne of God, we're taught in Scripture, and wanted that throne for himself. But the Lord said, no, there is no other God but me. And you understand this, I'm paraphrasing all this, and threw him out of heaven as a rebel and a traitor to which Jesus was witness, and at least in his humanness, gave evidence of that in Luke chapter 10 when he said in verse 18, I saw and was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And that would go back even to what Isaiah talks about with Satan being cast out. And so Jesus is saying basically to these religious phonies, Nothing could be further from the truth about who I am. I mean, you can kind of hear Jesus just, and this is my opinion, you don't see this in the text, but you kind of see him taking a step back and scratching his head and going, guys, that is ridiculous to even come up with a thought like that, which is what we have in verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, any kingdom, Divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And by the way, if you didn't know, Beelzebub was just another name for Satan in the Old Testament, carried over into the New Testament, who was a god of worshiping false idols. And so Beelzebub became another name for Satan. But Basically, Jesus is saying, again, that is ridiculous. Everybody in their right mind understands that for an organization or a family structure or a relationship to stand and be intact, there can't be an ongoing division within itself. Now, some of you understand what I'm talking about. You've either been in a situation with business or some kind of contractual agreements or even in your own very relationships with close loved ones, and you understand that there, when there's constant tension and disagreements about the way things should be, whatever the subject might be, it doesn't work. So you understand that very well. And anybody would get that. It doesn't matter 
who it is or what it is. Churches have divided for the same reasons. People just see things differently. And when that's the case, they don't are not able to be together. And Jesus is simply saying that's the same way in the spirit realm. Notice he continues in verse 27. If I, by Beelzebub, there's the word, cast out demons, then let me ask you a question. Who do your sons cast out demons by? And that's a very intriguing question, and it's only the Lord's mind who could come up with something like that. Basically, he's saying this. The word sons is a reference to followers of the Pharisees. So people who were like disciples of the Pharisees. And that was a common phrase, common word used to describe those people. And he's asking, meaning that there were evidently some people who were of the Pharisees, mentors or people who were being mentored by them, who attempted to perform demonic exorcisms. Jesus is kind of saying, okay, who do your people do this with? Now, I'm saying attempted because they had no real ability to do this. It was all a facade. In their minds, it was real. But Satan really tripping them up to make them think it was reality was really just confusing them in the situation. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, we have a good example of this in Acts chapter 19. The example being God is the only one who can cast out demons or whom he gives the power to do so in his name. And that's a very unique thing. I won't take time to go into that. I had a question about that after the other service. If you have questions about people being able to cast out demons, we don't have any record of anybody being able to do that other than what we see in Scripture. So when a person says they are able to do exorcisms, I have personally never seen that. Um, I'm just saying be cautious, very, very cautious of anybody who says they have the ability to do that, even if it's performed in Jesus' name. And again, here's why. Let's look at the text, Acts chapter 19. Notice how he writes this, God being the writer. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So who was doing the miracles? God was. Who was he using? Paul. Very clear, right? But notice this. And people have tried to imitate this kind of thing. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body, that's Paul, to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now again, who's doing the work? God's doing it, right? But God was using these unique times and situations because the completion of Scripture was not yet done and God was still making his people known to the world and Paul was one of them. But watch this now. This is a little comical really, but it's it's very impacting. But also some of the Jewish exorcists, here they are, who went from place to place attempting to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now let me stop right there. What they had heard was what they were doing wasn't working real well. But they were hearing that if you do it in Jesus' name, it'll work. And so they're attempting to do that. Verse 14, seven sons of Siva or Sceva, however you want to pronounce that, a Jewish chief priest were doing this. So here's this seven brothers who were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, hey, I know who Jesus is and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. 
Okay, so now, there's a great illustration in Scripture of the point being that if these exorcists were actually able to do what they said, even by Jesus's, or in Jesus' name, what was wrong here? Something wasn't right. I mean, did they not hold their mouth right? Were they supposed to stand on one foot? I mean, what was really going on? What was the problem? Well, the problem was, it was a deception. They thought they had the ability to do this. But even internally, they knew they couldn't do it. That's why they were calling on Jesus because they were, at least in his name, really using Jesus but not really believing in Jesus, making it look like they really had the power to do what they could do. And so the Lord is not fooled by the Pharisees' tactics here. I mean, in his brilliance, he just knows full well they're trying simply to trap him, which is what they'd been doing all along. And so Jesus calls them out on it. Notice further as he condemns them, Again in verse 27. So go back to Matthew 12. Talking back again about these sons. He says, for this reason they, that's the sons, will be your judges. In other words, Jesus' question to them is, let's ask your sons how they did the exorcisms. That's interesting. Because Jesus is really saying, if they say we did this by Satan's power, then guess where that puts you guys? Not in a very good light. You become the sons of Beelzebub. But if they say, we do this by God's power, then what are you fussing at me about? And so he traps them in between their own illogical minds. And I mean, you can already tell that he knows the answer. What they really wanted was to validate themselves and justify their own wickedness. That's what they were really after. That was their point. And why were they doing that? Well, it's like I said in the beginning, people only do this because they're not of their father, God. They're of their father, the darkness, Satan himself. They are satanic followers, unable to discern the true light of who God really is. And that's what John says in John 3:19. Here's the judgment. You know why people live under the judgment? Here it is. It's because light has come into the world. Notice the capital L in John 3.19, referring to Christ himself. The true light has come into the world, but the problem is men love darkness. They love darkness. Why do people do evil deeds? That's what he says here. They do evil deeds because they are evil in their hearts. They love darkness. Now, people may not be aware that that's what's happening externally or even in their conscious mind, or even in their subconscious mind. But the Lord is saying, in the spirit realm, I'm telling you, the issue is when a person is not fully for me, they are against me. And they're against me because their heart is full of darkness. Because there's either light or darkness. There is no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's nothing that's dim, getting brighter. Now, unless it's somebody growing in their awareness, that's different. But in the spiritual realm, Jesus is saying there's only one or the other. And so Jesus had to get rid of all of this because they were not telling the truth. And so mark it down, folks. Anytime a person denies the truth about Jesus, they are number one, and this should be clear, doing it because they're sinful in their hearts, which is all of us, or secondly, because they're sons of darkness, sons and daughters of Satan. That's tough. Nobody wants to hear that. But that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to know. Again, there are only two kinds of people in the world, spiritually speaking, those who are children of Satan and those who are children of God. 
You know what that also means? I've heard people use this phrase, Christians use this phrase over the years or this term, uh, carnal Christians. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. That's an oxymoron. You get what I'm saying? Carnality is of the flesh. The word carnal means fleshly, right? Chili con carne, right? We got flesh there. Well, God is saying no. There is no such thing as a person who lives in the flesh, meaning they're not desiring fully the things of God. It doesn't mean they live perfectly, but they are having a heart to follow after God. You can't say, oh, that person just went into a life of carnality. No, they're either born again or they're not. That's reality. People will often say, oh, well, I I know I was born again at this age, but I lived a long time of years without really caring about the things of God. You know what I would do? Question mark. Was your salvation real? That was my story. In fact, just yesterday, a young guy who I played basketball with came up to my wife and me, and he said, oh, what are you doing now? And I told him, he says, oh, so you're not the cussing, drinking person you used to be? And I said, nah, the Lord got a hold of my heart. And he changed me. But that's what he does, Right? We can't walk with one foot in the world and one foot on the other side. There is no way to do that in the spirit realm. That's the point the Lord is making here. He continues in verse 28 with his argument. If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then guess what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. I mean, there's only one reality here, boys. If I'm who I say I am, Let's just do the if-then if, the if test. If you're in programming, you understand what that is. You understand how if makes the statement and the then is what you get from it. And so if I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then what does that make me? Or who does that make me? God, right? Then there is no other way to understand this. And if I am the Messiah, then what else does that mean? Then God is with you in your midst. Both have to be true. Jesus said it this way, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Basically saying, look, you see me in the flesh. I'm telling you, I'm God. And if I'm God, then you're in the very presence of the kingdom of God itself. Now I could go on and explain that more, but we'll get to that more as far as the kingdom itself at some other time as the Lord brings that up more fully. We just don't have time to to, uh, really deal with all that right now. Now, for you and me, though, what this means is that when we acknowledge him for who he really is and we serve him for who he is, we are delivered, Colossians 1.13 says, from the domain of darkness. Right? We come into the world in darkness. We come into the world sinful, but we recognize who he is, as we were just talking about earlier, and we move from the power and the control of Satan to the control of the Holy Spirit into the realm of his kingdom, meaning we are no longer under the control of Satan. Are we influenced by him? Absolutely. In fact, the more we grow closer to God, the more we are influenced by Satan. My wife and I were talking about that this week. I think probably after the messages I preached the last couple weeks and even this one coming up today, uh, we could just sense that Satan was working on us and causing us to to go into a way that was not good. But the issue is, the the truth is, we're not controlled by Satan any longer. 
right? Somebody asked me after the first service, do you think people can still be demon-possessed? Absolutely people can be demon-possessed. In fact, I would say that any unbeliever can be demon-possessed at any given time. Any unbeliever. And more than likely is demon-possessed at any given time. You say, well... Good grief, I've never foamed at the mouth and fallen over in the fire and all this kind of stuff. Okay, awesome, glad you haven't. That has nothing to do with whether demons have come inside you or not. The reality is, unless the spirit of the living God lives in your heart, there is no barrier to keep them from coming in. That's the truth. But when we're born again, the spirit of the Lord comes into us and we no longer are controlled by Satan. Influenced? Yes. But no longer do we live in fear or under his power. Now, let's go on here to finish this. The Lord asked a question they also couldn't disagree with, just kind of finishing his thoughts here in verse 29. We just don't want to skip it. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? In other words, if I'm not the Messiah, how can I do what I do? How can I do that? Because everybody knows if a thief breaks into your house and tries to steal things, he'll get away with it unless he is first bound, right? I mean, it's just logic, meaning I came to do what I came to do because I wanted to bind and will bind the strong man, that's Satan, which you see me doing through the miracles. I'm keeping him from doing what he's doing. Only God can bind the strong man. The illustration there is, if somebody breaks into your house, only somebody stronger than the thief is going to be able to bind him, right? I mean, it's probably reasonable to think that a one-year-old is not going to be able to bind a thug breaking into your house. But the one who's more dominant, more powerful, more in control, will be able to do the job. And to that, they would have to go, yeah, that makes sense. Now, they're not going to agree with him because they hate him. But that's logical. It makes sense to us. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm the stronger one here because I'm God. And Satan is not. Don't give him power that he doesn't have. I am over him. Which really brings us now to the crescendo of everything he wants us to know. Look at verse 30. He who is not with me is what? And he who does not gather with me, what? Meaning there's no middle ground. There it is. There's no middle ground in the relationship. If you're undecided about me, the Lord is saying, and this is tough, folks, I understand. Even if you're undecided about me, you're not ill-intentioned, you're undecided, Jesus is saying, you are still against me. That's where you still stand in the spiritual realm. If you're not even opposed to me, there are a lot of people like that. You know, okay, Jesus, whatever. I don't, you know, who cares? The Lord's saying, if you're not with me, even if you're ambivalent to me, you're not in me. You don't belong to me. You are my enemy because there's only one or the other. Now, again, as I was studying through this, I thought, boy, that is really, really, really tough. And it's one that most people don't understand and really don't want to accept. It just doesn't sound right, especially as we are more and more bombarded by this life of relativity, right? 
when there is no black and white, does it not make sense to you in a spiritual thinking process that if you're the enemy of God, you want to remove black and white? You want to remove barriers and boundaries when God is so clearly embracing us in the boundaries of his realm and his kingdom? Well, if you're the enemy of God, break down all walls, break down all, uh, all truth so that people believe whatever they want to believe. And then you got them, see? It's a brilliant tactic. But it's not going to work for God's people because God gives us the ability to see through it. But we got to pay attention. And we got to hold on to what we know. In our world of relativity, people will not want to hear this kind of message because it, it too clearly makes a demarcation line. We can't live like that. I mean, how are these people going to be happy? And how are these people going to be happy? And how are they going to be included? And how are they going to be included? Well, here's how they're included. Repentance. That's the key. People are included in the kingdom of God and the truth of black and white by repenting of their sin and turning to him. That's Jesus' point. He's saying, look, to be a part of my kingdom, you've got to give me everything. Not just a little bit, not just a majority, but everything. Matthew 10, we studied this some weeks ago. Do not think, Jesus said, that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I know Satan and the world will take a statement like that and they'll blow it up as some missing the point context. Jesus is very clearly delineating who belongs to him. He's not advocating some kind of violence here. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And by the way, he's referring back to an Old Testament passage there. But then Jesus says in verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You remember that message? And you know why the Lord can say that and not grimace and back up and shake and wonder whether people are going to condemn him or not? It's because he is God. This is his game. And that's probably a bad usage of the word, but this is his reality. He created everything for his purpose and his glory. We don't make the rules but our sinfulness wants to make the rules, right? But that's not fair, God. I don't like that. That doesn't make sense to me. That's exactly right, God says, because I make the rules, and by the way, you're not God. We submit to him. We don't dictate to him. And so concluding in verse 31, Jesus says, therefore, he's closing out this truth. I say to you, And this is the passage that gets really confused by a lot of people. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit, capital S, shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age age to come. Now, I want to be really clear here because some people will hear this and have heard this over the years and have thought, oh, I accidentally said something in a statement that I shouldn't have said. Does that mean that I 
I lose heaven? Is God kicking me out of the salvation plan because I accidentally cursed or I said something even in anger or whatever? No, God's not talking about that. He's first of all talking about that sin, number one, is rebellion by mankind against God. Okay, that should be clear to us after all this time. Morality, immorality, thoughts, actions, reactions, we come into this world sinful people. We are automatically enemies with God. But blasphemy is a sin that is born from defiance of who God is. It is that purposefulness, that open rejection of God as God or living in some purposeful opposition to who God is. That's blasphemy. But hear this, beloved. And this is beautiful. This is huge. God, we're told by Jesus, will even forgive blasphemy if we repent of it. If we repent. And there are many examples of this. The Apostle Paul, he was a blasphemer. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, we have his record of this. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And what saved me, verse 14, the grace of our Lord was more abundant. My ignorance was huge. I acted upon my ignorance. I lived out my ignorance, but the grace of God, and this is what you need to hear, the grace of God was so much more abundant, far bigger than my ignorance and my mistakes with the faith and love which are found where? In Christ Jesus. Jesus is the author of forgiveness. He is the one who's come to show us it is possible, even in the depths of the wickedness of our sin, even the point of blasphemy is forgivable. Peter, how can we forget Peter? Lived with Jesus, saw Jesus. I mean, did everything with Jesus. It comes to his last days and Peter, in a moment of weakness, verse 71 of Mark 14, began to curse and to swear. I don't know the man you're talking about. It's blasphemy. Blasphemy in the face of Jesus. And we know the story as Jesus turns to look at him. He catches a glimpse of Peter's face and Peter with him and the cock crows. And Peter knows what he's done. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. That was the repentant heart. That was the heart that was saying, how can I do this against God? I know who he is. The thief on the cross was there because of his blasphemous life. But he was forgiven because he confessed with his heart the Lord Jesus. Look at the story, Luke 23. He hears the insults and the wagging of the tongue of the other criminal at Jesus. And he says to that guy, listen, Luke 23:41, we are suffering justly. We deserve this. We're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man did nothing wrong. And he was saying in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all he could get out. In the agony and the pain of his moment, all he could at least utter according to what we know from the gospel writers is that phrase. And look at the heart of the Lord as he's hanging there with him on the cross. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
because you were willing to confess your sin. Repentance is the key. And the truth is, God is even blasphemed, beloved, by believers. Not only Peter and Paul, but even us. When those times when we know what we should do, God makes it clear in his word, but we don't like it, and so we act upon some sin in any, any way, that's blasphemy. Or not controlling our thought life and speaking either for or against God or the times where we question him. Now, let me again be clear about this. God is not so concerned about our questions. He wants our questions. What he doesn't want is our questioning in a negative sense, blaming him condemning him. You see, that's a wrong perspective. But sometimes we, we do just that. We question his wisdom, his, his fairness. God, why did you do this? His faithfulness, his truth, and all of that comes out in our lifetimes. I don't think there's a one of us that would say there's not a time in life, depending on the circumstance, where we feel that kind of weight in our souls to where we cry out to God that way. But hear me, beloved. God is saying even that is forgivable when you repent. When you repent. Which is why the Lord says in verse 32, whoever speaks a word even against the Son of Man, And the people did, didn't they? I mean, they literally hung him on the cross. But he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is forgivable. That's why he says, it shall be forgiven him. But, listen, there's one that cannot and will not ever be forgiven, and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And you say, okay, what is that really? What does that really mean? Well, it's again, just simply when the person has heard the message of who God is and all that he offers in salvation, but out of the coldness of their heart, they still reject him even though they know the truth. God says, There is no other means of escape. I have given you everything. If you don't accept this, there is nothing left. I cannot offer you some other means. Our world through Satan will say, Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not the only way. Right? That's a lie. Those people will go off into eternal darkness. Because the Lord is very clear. Listen, Hebrews 6, 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now let's just be clear here. The word enlightened there is the Greek word for photo, basically. It's you know, taking a snapshot and light comes in and you get the image. It's the picture there. Those who have been enlightened of the truth, your heart sees, you know this to be reality. And you've experienced, that's the word tasted there. At some point in time in your life, you've witnessed this biblical truth and you've understood it clearly, but still reject it. The Lord is saying when a person lives their life in that kind of determined unbelief, there's nothing God can do for them. Unless they repent. But then that's back to the beginning. We do blaspheme. Many people have blasphemed. 
Many people have denied God, but then they come to the awareness of who he is and they accept him for who he is. God forgives. But when a person persistently lives that kind of life of ignoring the power of God, the gift has been given, the sacrifice has been made, sins have been atoned for, there is no other avenue except through my son. And so verse 32, the second part of it says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. In this age is a phrase simply talking about in all of human history. It doesn't matter who we're talking about. Start from the beginning to the end or in the age to come through all eternity, there is no opportunity for that person. They have sealed their fate and God seals them in their own fate. Now to me, The Pharisees in this moment in history were doubly rejecting God because they not only knew the truth better than anybody, but the living Christ was literally in their presence, proving to them physically who he is. But yet they turn around and they give all the credit to Satan. I would not advise that. So salvation is gone. And that's what Jesus is making so clear here. But again, let's finish on a good note. The good news, in case you haven't heard this, is that anybody who hears the call of God, anybody, doesn't matter where you've been in life or how much you've rejected him and humbles yourself and turns to him, you will be forgiven. And Paul made that very clear in Romans 10. You know it as well as I do. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth something specific, Jesus, not just Jesus, but what? As Lord, commander, officer, captain of your soul, God himself, and believe in your heart that God did in fact raise him from the dead, you understand the gospel, you will be saved. It's done. You will be saved. Why is that? Verse 10, for with the heart... The abundance of the heart, this is where the belief is held, right? It's a figurative way of expressing where where we believe. It's that intimate part of us, what the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. In other words, there is that if-then kind of thing there again. If you believe this in your heart, then you will be credited as righteous. And with your mouth, you will confess, and the result will be you will be saved and you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And because this is such a needed and critical point to all of scripture, and the reason why God comes, Paul, in his letter to the the church in Corinth, the second letter in chapter 6, verse 2 says, Behold, listen, that's a, a declarational statement. Behold, listen, 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 listen. Now is the acceptable time Now is the day of salvation. In other words, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't somehow lie to yourself in thinking that you've got another second to make this decision after today. You don't know that. You don't know. The Lord says very clearly in one of his parables, today your soul could be very well required of you. a very serious message. And why is it so serious? And why do we keep hammering it? Why does the Lord keep hammering it? 
because he came to rescue us. And he doesn't want us to push away. The picture would be, again, like the last couple of weeks, here's the life jacket. You're dying, you're drowning, you're going under. No, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm good. I've got this. No, you're dying, you're drowning. Here's the rope, here's the rope, here's the rope. You know, the Lord just keeps throwing it out there, throwing it out there. No, I'm good, I'm good. There's nothing else I can do. Take the rope. Take the jacket. And trust and believe by faith in who he is and what he said. And you will be saved. Amen? Good news. The gospel is good news. It's good news. Father, we thank you for your love. Only you, Father, could come up with something so loving and kind and gracious as to offer yourself as the redemption for your own price that you require for sin. Only you, Lord, could love your creation enough to send your only son to die in our place so that we might have eternal life. Lord, in our, in our Western culture, in our sinful thinking, uh, but especially in our Western culture, we just so easily come up with all the reasons why this is just crazy and there's some other way and, yeah, it's important but not really. Father, would you just awaken the hearts of the blind or just help them to see before it's too late? Lord, that we're all in the same boat. There's not one better than another, but that you've come to rescue us, all who will repent. It's just the continual message of the prophets over and over and over, all throughout history. Repent, 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 and God will save you. So, Lord, we thank you for doing just that. And we find our peace in you, knowing that we do belong to you because of your work. And uh, so we just ask that you would give us strength to go through the days that we have ahead of us, if you so choose. And Lord, we will continue to be faithful in following you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to teach us. Lord, we thank you for the warnings that you give us. We thank you for the love and the mercy you show upon us. So, Lord, we just ask your blessings on the time that we've had here and and keep us safe throughout the rest of the week. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.